Hello and welcome to Dominic Frisby. Dominic, it's wonderful to have you uh, on this podcast. Thanks very much, Douglas. A pleasure to be here. Now, for those who don't know, um, Dominic is a comic genius. He is, uh, I think, England's England's answer to Joe Rogan. You are a stand-up comedian who also has some very insightful views on politics and economics. And you're also a financial writer and an economist. So um, tell us a little bit about how you combine those two rather different roles. Well, it's a, it's a weird double life, Douglas, but we live in an age of the gig economy and freelancers and we have to have various, uh, you know, one salary isn't enough in these inflationary times. So uh, we, we moonlight. And um, yeah, I, I actually started out my life doing voiceovers of all things. And then I wrote this comic song and ended up doing stand-up comedy for about 15 or 20 years. And I'd made a bit of money and I was looking to invest it. And uh, there was all these clever people talking on the internet. I thought I'd love to find a way of meeting them without actually having to pay them for their time. So I started a podcast <laughs> and uh, as a way to meet these clever people. This is going back 15, 20 years nearly. And one of the people who I interviewed was a lady called Meryn Somerset Webb. Uh, who's a journalist with the Financial Times and Money Week. And she said, oh, we need people like you to write for us. Will you come and write for us? And so suddenly I find myself as a financial writer. And I, I don't quite know why, but being a financial writer and commentating on markets and so on, and being a comedian, you'd think they were exclusive, but they're not. They kind of go hand in hand quite nicely. Well, I, I think given that you're uh, an astute observer of um, the absurdity of politics and you're also a financial writer you'll be the perfect person to comment on what's going on economically i mean it it, it is extraordinary prices in here in mississippi are, are going through the roof um, um gas prices petrol prices i think you call them on your side of the atlantic um I, they've virtually doubled in 12 months um you know you you notice it when you go and buy a few groceries now it's it's it it, it hits you it hits you hard in the wallet um why is well, this it's it's even worse in the UK and it's even worse on the in continental Europe. And, you know, in, I think uh, inflation in some goods in Germany is at, uh, above 30 percent. I mean, it's really serious. Wow. And the there are several reasons for it. Um, but specifically talking about oil, I mean, firstly, one reason is the extraordinary amount of money that's been printed since 2008. And until two or three years ago, that money had mostly gone into assets, financial assets, the property market and so on. So we've seen huge inflation in the stock market, huge inflation in the housing markets, but it hasn't gone through into the goods that you see in CPI, uh, you know, petrol, ordinary consumer goods and yeah. so on. And they've been thrown prone to the deflationary forces of competition, improved productivity and all the rest of it. So we haven't seen inflation there. And so the money printing has been hidden. But what's been going on, and this is specific, and obviously now with the lockdowns and the supply chains and all that, suddenly we're seeing the inflation now. And the war didn't help. <laughs> Putin invading Ukraine hasn't helped either. But, 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 but let Ukraine, me talk specifically. Ukraine exacerbated the problem. Ukraine wasn't the cause of the problem. Uh, I, I agree. It's it's being portrayed as the cause, and it is the the cause to a certain a certain extent with grains, uh, grain prices, particularly in um, North Africa and Europe, mm -hmm. and also the embargoes on Russia. I think Russia produces something like ten percent of oil, and the inflation in Europe because of gas has been, well, again they're still buying the Russian gas, <laughs> even with the war they're still buying the gas, and there's still inflation. 
Let me talk specifically about oil, Douglas, and I think this will be a subject fairly close to your heart. Mm -hmm. What we've seen is this narrative, probably for 15 or 20 years, but it's got really acute in the last five or six years, that fossil fuel is bad. And we need alternative sources of energy. We need um, not even nuclear. It's got to be wind energy or solar power or any of these other things. And there's this been attacked. And really, I don't think it's actually about climate change. I think it's people attacking capitalism. They don't like capitalism. But nevertheless, it's been framed as an attack. You know, fossil fuel is causing climate change. Now, as a result, there's been a decade. There was a big oil spike in 2008. And then again, the market saved us, the improved productivity, largely due to fracking in North America and all the technologies to get that oil out cheaply, meant that the oil price was driven lower in the early part of the decade. And we were spared the pain of that oil spike in 2008. It was only temporary. But it has become toxic to work in oil and gas, almost. You know, it's the people who work in that industry are attacked all over the internet you're evil esg it's not just it's not just that you're ostracized on social media esg means that you can't get the capital thanks blackrock and vanguard and the rest of you um those big fund management organizations have systematically set out to drive capital away from fossil fuel well i i was about to mention esg douglas and you're absolutely right and the combination of all these things, the narrative, the ESG, uh, we, the, the subsidies to green energy and so on, has meant we have had almost a decade of underinvestment in oil and gas. For, for, and for when you don't invest in something, you, 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 the price goes up because there's a shortage of supply of cheap for, stuff. For, for those who don't know, what is ESG? Environmental Social Governance, I think it yeah. stands for. Yeah. And um, I, I guess you have it in the States, but we certainly have it yeah, all over it Europe. Yeah. And, and it's and, and it's, it's, this, it's this idea that when you invest money, you mustn't just invest on the sort of pecuniary uh, uh, assessment of, 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 of returns. You must uh, invest on the basis of these um, do-goody criteria. Absolutely. And it's one of your beloved mandarins, Douglas, telling us what is good and what is bad and what is yeah. right and what is wrong. Yeah. And they ignore. And the hypocrisy of the whole thing is that it, to make your net zero green energy revolution happen, you need to burn shed loads more fossil fuel than you would otherwise be burning to get the lithium, the tin, all the metal, the copper, the, the plastic for the solar panels. So the green energy revolution takes shed loads of fossil fuel, fossil fuel to enable. It's very hypocritical. It's it, it almost it's almost rather like Marie Antoinette. Um, you know, she 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 had a sort of um, a, a farm, and she deluded herself that um, as she skipped around with a few sheep, she was she was a farmer. It, it, it's almost as if the sort of green industry is conning itself that by having a a, a few wind turbines and a few solar panels that you can sort of do away with the need for fossil fuel. It's, it's a sort of the delusion of an elite. You don't really understand the, the facts of economic life. 
it really is the delusion of the, the elite, the delusion of the central planner, the delusion of the man who's looking at a world from an office in a city rather than getting his hands dirty in the ground somewhere. And you mentioned Marie Antoinette. She's the sort of symbol of decadence, one of the historical symbols of decadence. And she had a lifestyle in whenever she was alive, seven, the late 18th century, 1780s, 1790s, 1770s. Um, she was you know, one of the most decadent people in history. She would kill for the lifestyle that the poorest person in the developed world has today. You know, smartphones, running water, electricity, all these luxuries which have been made possible by fossil fuel. <laughs> so, so how do you think this unfolds? I mean, I, I suspect that some of the people who run some of those big fund managers may not be running them in a 12 months time. I, I, I suspect that they're doubling down on ESG. It, it, means that they're basically charlatans and they're about to be exposed when uh, famously i think um warren buffett said when the tide goes out you see who's still wearing trunks um i suspect who's some been of the, swimming naked who's been swimming naked i suspect some of the people who run some of the largest fund management industries on both sides of the atlantic and who've been prophets of esg um are going to be exposed as pretty butt naked um how do you think this is going to unfold, though? Do you think we're going to see ESG ditched quietly? Do you think we're going to see a recession in which you're going to people are going to recognise that capital has been chronically misallocated by all of this? Yes, I do. I think the narrative is changing, and I think people are starting to realise that we ESG might be a luxury that we can't afford, and we might have to. But I think governments will deal with it in their hypocritical way because they're so scared of the environmental lobby they'll find hypocritical ways to just push it down the road mm -hmm. um, but the fact is oil and gas stocks are up 60 percent this year and 2022 this is a very difficult market it's very difficult to find any returns anywhere and most of those esg stuff a lot of it's falling and so people who've put their pensions or whatever their investments into those funds are going to be pretty unhappy about it. And, you know, the market forces will prevail. If oil and gas stocks are giving you a 60% return, people are going to put their money into oil and gas stocks, ESG or not. Um, do you think, and I do think, you think those you, ESG funds might have to change their remit, some of them. Do, do you think you might see some class actions against some of the fund managers for breach of fiduciary duty, that they're basically been mismanaging other people's money in pursuit of what you might call a sort of Davos agenda? Do you think some of them will lose their share? Well, no, because I, th I don't know enough about it, but I think if those funds have been set up with ESG criterion in mind, and that's the remit of the fund, yeah. then it's only, you, you, you know, it's pretty transparent. We are an ESG fund. We are investing in this, that, and the other. So, I, I, I mean, it's America, so class action <laughs> is, is, is the way. But in Europe, I would have thought it's less likely. Yeah. yeah. Good. And, and, and so, OK, so we're going to see inflation um, and that's kind of inevitable now. I think we're going to see a, a, a recalibration of thinking about energy policy and we're going to see a sort of return to 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 to, to common sense. But how long how, how long do you think this is going to take? I mean, do you think you're going to see a sort of decade of falling living standards while all this corrects itself? Well. There's a very big. Um, change underlying change that we've seen over the last six months and i think a lot of people haven't realized this and it's because for so long we've heard central bankers and politicians jawboning about inflation without ever actually really doing anything about it 
But now the threat is very real and it's much harder to conceal. And, you know, Biden has said our number one priority is inflation and Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve has said something very similar. Mm. Now, in 2008, 2009, policymakers were very scared of deflation, petrified of it. I'm talking about deflation by their definition of the word. In other words, falling asset prices, not nothing to do with the money supply. And so the number one remit, remit was to prop things up. And so every time markets fell or the housing market fell or whatever, the, the Federal Reserve, their central banks were there to print money, zero interest rate policies, protect asset prices at all costs. Mm-hmm. Now, the fear genuinely is def- inflation. And so we have to realize that the great protector of asset prices, the Federal Reserve, is no longer on our side. When I say on our side, it's no longer defending asset prices. It actually wants asset prices lower. Because if the stock market goes down 20%, um, you know, tech stocks go down 30 or 40%, crypto takes a haircut, um, even the housing market comes off 20, 25%, then suddenly money is a lot tighter. And so people start behaving in a more with a more deflationary mindset. And it, if they can get asset prices down 20, 30%, then suddenly they won't have to put up rates by quite as much as they think they might. one might actually have had to. So there's a fundamental difference is that the the powers that be are not protecting markets anymore in the way that they were. They actually want them lower. Right, that's fascinating, that's fascinating. Excellent, Um, so we talked a little little bit about the um, uh, economic situation. It's slightly sort of doom and gloom. Um, We talked about sort of Biden and Boris, not really sort of, doing too well. I mean, I think England now has the highest tax burden it's had in 70 years. Um, I suspect America is going to be perhaps not 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 heading back 70 years, but perhaps heading back to the 1970s um, economically. Um, to, to sort of lighten things up, tell us tell us a little bit about what you're doing in terms of in terms of comedy, because you you have a show that sort of pinpoints the pomposity and, and tricks the pomposity of of the establishment. You very famously produced um a couple of songs uh, about Brexit. Um, in fact, sometimes when, uh, when during that awful moment when the elite in Britain tried to overturn the uh, the the um, referendum result, you produced a song that um, I'm not going to mention uh, the title of it on, on on air because this is a family show. But um, you 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 tend to cheer people up with your your comedy. Um, what are you working on now? How can you cheer us up given the the, the mess that the Western world is in at the moment? Well, just I do think it is in a bit of a pickle, but I'm like you, I think I'm a great believer in human ingenuity and enterprise and um, people wanting to improve their lot and all those motivational forces. And so I think we'll find a way of muddling through and it's all gonna be okay. And technology will somehow save us as will entrepreneurs and risk takers and all the rest of it. So I'm not, we're in a big pickle, don't get me wrong, but I don't, I don't think it's Armageddon around the corner. I think we'll be all right. And just we're just going to maybe have to pull our socks up and tighten our belts a little bit. Um, but we'll be OK. Um, what are, what it's are, never quite as things are never quite like I know you're you have sympathy to Austrian economic views. And we sort of want this big washout and then to go back <laughs> to a 15 percent tax rate and sound money 
and you know gold and bitcoin stand all over we're not going to get that it's always it's it's the real world's always a bit more mucky than the ideal world but i think we'll be all right the, the 18 year old in me is still still hoping for that utopia um yeah <laughs> um, I, I have to say on on a brighter side as well i i remember spending you know years reading articles basically saying the west is, is a busted flush we're going to be overtaken by these new authoritarian states and china and russia and what have you i just wonder actually if one of the consequences of ukraine is to show not only has the west rediscovered its purpose um possibly the west minus germany which seems to be still sort of um slightly delusional but much of the west seems to have woken up and also what, what what seems to be apparent is actually that the western way for all its faults and for all its sort of internal criticisms and wokeness, actually the West is in remarkably good shape. It's, you know, Russia seems to be the sort of, um, you know, it, it's more, more a country run by Mr. Bean than Stalin. Um, it, it, it doesn't seem sort of capable of projecting force within sort of 10 miles of its frontiers. Um, I, I just wonder if, if perhaps we've also overestimated China. Um, you know, China, we've, we've sort of thought of as this inevitable great power. But you know, demographically they're in a mess. Economically, they've got huge problems with with credit. Um, um, the, the the behavior of their current um, regime means that they seem to be sort of slowing down economically and beginning to repeat many of the mistakes of the Ming. I I I actually think that actually maybe 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 the West's not a busted flush after all. Maybe the Western way is actually the the, the best way to organize societies and some of these autocracies are, are, are actually a lot weaker than we think they are. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot that could be done a lot better in the West. But um, if you look at where do people want to go? You know, where are all where's where is global global migration going? Well, the answer they're not queuing is up to go where, to Russia. <laughs> they're not queuing up to go to Russia and they're not queuing up to go to China. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, th and that's people voting with their feet and so you know i think that's probably the best indicator um i do think in the context of the west i think we will see um you know some countries do a little bit better than other countries you know maybe one country portugal at the moment is doing quite well it's got very sensible low tax relative to the rest of europe so there's a mini migration within europe to Portugal, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners, for example, go to Portugal. So I think you'll see little spurts of growth according to local policy. Yeah. But well, on Portugal, the whole, Portugal is the Mississippi of Europe, in a sense. Maybe. Yeah. That's quite a nice analogy. There's certainly <laughs> certainly a lot of water there. <laughs> and Please. this is going to take me about five minutes to get through this. So um, I, I, I value your patience. So my dad was a writer. And in um, 1940, well, he, my dad died about three years ago and he was very successful. He wrote the longest running comedy in the history of the West End. There's a girl in my suit, became, ran for six years, became a film with Peter Sellers and Goldie Horn, various other things. But he always said the best thing I ever wrote was this thing, Kisses on a Postcard. And it's the story of his time as an evacuee in World War II. And I'm gonna tell you the story in a second. And in, like, I fell in love with this project in about 1990 or something. And for 35 years, me and dad have been trying to make it happen. And one way or another, we're trying to get, we needed to raise like 5 million pounds to put it on in the West End. It was just too much, too big a risk when there weren't, there were too many unknowns involved. 
But anyway, after Dad's died during the lockdown, I rewrote a lot of the music and we went into an audio studio and recorded it all. So there now exists, and we're actually launch it live on Monday, this podcast version of this project that we've been trying to make happen for 20 or 30 years. And I've got to say, it's one of those lifetime goals reached. You know, it's a really big milestone in my life. And I think what we've done is really good. Anyway, let me tell you the story, because I think a lot of your listeners and viewers in Mississippi will be quite touched by this. So in 1940, when dad was seven and his brother Jack was 11, he lived in southeast London and the last of the British soldiers had just come back from Dunkirk. And we knew that the Germans were about to bomb um, all the major cities in the UK. And so something like four million children, all the kids in cities across the UK, were evacuated from the cities down to the countryside. It was the biggest movement of people in our country's history. And my dad, nobody knew where they were going, who, the, who was gonna take them in, how long they'd be there for, just all unknowns. And my, as I say, my dad was seven and, and his brother was 11 and they were put on a train in um, Southeast London in Deptford and sent down to Cornwall, as it turned out. They didn't know they were going to Cornwall, but they ended up in Cornwall, which is on the Southwest tip of the UK. So that being um, sent to Maine for the summer. I don't even know where the most, it's like being sent to Hawaii. It's like the remote, remote, remote part of, of the UK, Alaska. But anyway, the, it actually, on the map, it actually looks like Florida, bizarrely. The Cornwall has a sort of resemblance of Florida, but it's much colder. Um, and to turn it into an adventure for them, my grandmother said, gave them a postcard. And she said, I'm going to give you a secret code. And you write on this postcard the address of where you're going. Of, of where you end up. And then if it's nice, and if it's horrible, you put one kiss and I'll come straight down and get you. And if it's okay, you put two kisses. And if it's nice, you put three kisses. So it was their little secret code. So they put, they were then put on the um, train with their gas masks and their uh, a bag and a, and a little label that had their name on it. And, it, you know, I played it to a gang, bunch of friends in the car the other day, this scene, when she's saying goodbye to them. And they said, that's exactly what's happening in Ukraine now with the evacuation of you. Nobody knows how long for, where they're going, what, they just know they've got to go. So it's like that. And they were sent down to this little village in Cornwall um, with their whole school on the train. And then they were divided up and then they were put in the village hall. And then all the locals who had funny Cornish accents, they spoke like that and funny Cornish. They all said, they each picked a kid out and my dad and his brother were told they had to stay together and they were picked out by a Welsh couple um, who lived next to the railway. He worked on the railways and dad and his brother loved railways. My granddad worked on the railways. Um, and they got to this tiny house and there was, there was a, a boy a bit older than them who was a young soldier, their son Gwyn. There was a cat asleep in the fire. There were chick uh, canary um, cats asleep next to the fire. There was a pig in the garden, chickens, the railway at the end of the road, woods, a valley to explore. And they thought they'd died and gone to heaven. And so they ended up putting hundreds and hundreds of crosses on this postcard <laughs> and sending it, it home. And so that's it. why it's called Kisses on a Postcard. That must have been a really powerful moment when that postcard arrived. Oh, can you imagine? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. And they would then spend the next four years in this tiny village. And I've been down to this village in Cornwall, and it really is 
Douglas, as in the middle of nowhere as you could possibly be. It's not by the beautiful beaches or something, it's inland. Anyway. So when it, when is the when is the play coming out? It, it comes out on Monday, the whatever it is, the third and fourth of, of June. Um, and there's a full length version that you can buy. It would be like $20 or something like that. But there's, I'm also putting out a free version, which is shorter, just because I just want as many people as possible to listen to this story, because I, I want as many people to fall. Uh, to, I want people to fall in love with it like I have. Wonderful. Wonderful. This is a song called Got Any Gum Chum. And this is what all the the backy, all, all the kids, the British kids in the war would say to the American soldiers, because the soldiers always had gum chum. They always had chewing gum. And so the, the, the saying was, got any gum chum. And this is a song shortly after the GIs arrive and they sing this song. And it's from Kisses on a Postcard uh, by Terence Frisbee. And it's available. Uh, just Google Kisses on a Postcard and you'll find it. Hello, how are you? Good day. We're soldiers from the U.S. of A. Pleased to meet you, sir. Pleased to meet you, ma'am. Pleased to meet you, pretty lady. We're here for Uncle Sam at your service this fine day. Any questions? Please just say. Do you know Clark 
might have some. Penny love, chub. Now don't all scrum. Penny love, chub. It sure is yum. You can chew it till your mouth goes numb. Go any gum, chub. It sure is fun. Any gum, chub. Do the chewing hum. Yummy yum, yum. Rum pum pum. And that is how you do the chewing hum.